This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Rebecca Huntley here. Welcome to Summer and the History Listen. Today, the story of a woman who was captivated by a big idea. She took a huge risk and the fallout from her actions had implications for generations of her family. I'll hand over to Alice Moldovan to tell you the story. Hello. Last year, I volunteered at Limud Oz, the Festival of Jewish Ideas in Sydney. I heard a woman give a talk on the story of her grandmother, and I was floored by this woman's tenacity in what she'd been through in Europe in the 1930s. My um, uh, full name is Ludmila Stern. Hannah was my grandmother. She was a doctor. And uh, I remember her as a homemaker. She was um, quite a strict grandmother, but she was very loving and very affectionate. Hannah Salman was born to a poor family in Tarnow in southeast Poland at the turn of the century. She was one of six kids and her parents sent her to France to study medicine for a chance at a better future. For the rest of her life, she dealt with uncertainty and some terrifying surprises. They all came from a decision she made as a young student in Paris. What I only found out much later, probably when I was about 20 or so, was that Not only was she a communist, but she was also involved in some form of espionage uh, for the Soviet Union. Yes, my granddaughter. Our family in Poland were very religious, conservative. So I decided on a different path. And I funded in a group of young Zionists. They were socialists. We talked about the Jewish homeland, a utopia. They were intoxicating ideas. In my family, I'm the smartest one, you see? So I've been sent to France. I live in wonderful Paris. I study at La Sorbonne. And I go to the meetings of the French Communist Party when I'm not busy with my studies. I want to be an elegant Parisian. It's such a shame that when I'm on the way to the meetings, I have to wipe away my lipstick. They tell me it's too bourgeois. I've met a wonderful man. He's Polish, Mosey. But he in France, he's called Maurice. He's also studying to be a doctor. A nice Jewish boy. And now I have Madeleine, my French friend. She also studies at La Sorbonne. And she believes in a better system too. She knows more about it than me, though. You'll meet Madeleine soon. Madeleine, unlike my grandmother and unlike most members in this espionage network, was a native French person. She was not a foreigner. She was not Jewish. She was a daughter of a railway uh, railway worker. Again, I'm mentioning her father's profession because um, railway workers, les cheminots, were known in France for being very much left-wing and traditionally had strong uh, pro-Soviet and pro-communist sympathies. 
Recently, after one of the meetings, Madeleine introduced me to a Polish man. His name was Poryżecki. Remember that name. He had new ideas about how I could help the party. Boris invited me to join a secret group to collect information from the French to pass on to Moscow. It's bigger than being a member of the French Communist Party. It's not legal, but it will help the Soviet Union. They said that this is the best way I can help the cause. I am... Well, I... I said I'll do it. I became a spy. But who was Boris Jetsky? On paper, in the archival documents, the only thing we knew about him was that his name was Boris Jetsky. We don't know for a fact how he recruited my grandmother, but it is known that he recruited her best friend at the University of Sorbonne. So uh, when I started researching Boris Zhetsky, I couldn't find absolutely anything about him. And I wondered whether uh, his surname was a fake and whether he was operating using a false passport. And in the end, following quite an extensive uh, research, I discovered that I was right. Uh, he was somebody else who operated under a false name. Um, his real name was uh, Aaron Ehrenlieb. Aaron Ehrenlieb. In a bunch of archives I found online, I came across a set of letters between the British Home Office, the American Embassy and MI5. Aaron Ehrenlieb was born 19th May 1895 in Lublin, Russia, to Sarah and Leza, query Eliezer, and later described himself as a naturalised Austrian Jew. Ehrenlieb, who was a bookkeeper by profession, was a first-class accountant. He suffered from myopia. He also used the cover name Sigmund Jankowski. He was what we call a legal intelligence officer. So he had a cover of the um, embassy, but it was not known clearly uh, who he was. Later on, he became what we call an illegal intelligence officer. And uh, he uh, also created what we call fronts. They were fake um, companies uh, to cover up the illegal activities of, of the espionage networks. Every time the police, the local police, began to suspect and follow him, he would skip the country and he would go to another country and start a new network under most likely a different name. I meet with workers from military factories in a public spot. So we look like friends meeting for a stroll. They communist sympathizers and they give me documents filled with secret details of the army operations and national defense. They smuggle the information to me and I take it around France, to Toulon, to Berlin, and I even taken the documents to Morocco and Tunisia. I'm learning to use a camera. Boris says that these photographs 
will help me earn more money. But something has changed recently. I am being followed. A critical part of being a spy is making sure you don't get caught while you're doing your job. But Boris didn't tell Hannah and Madeleine how to do that. They weren't supposed to meet in cafes or at each other's houses where they could be seen all the time. They were meant to meet in parks and squares and in a safe house. But they weren't that valuable to the organisation, and Boris Jetsky simply didn't care enough to let them know how to do the job properly. And that's how the spy ring unravelled. In 1994, Hannah's friend Madeleine Mermet agreed to an interview in Paris on an old tape recorder. He was not an ordinary follower. She was very pretty. She probably been followed by men who liked the look of her legs or her eyes. But this time, someone was directed to follow her. It was official business. The landlord at Hotel Nation on Boulevard de Charon has reported to police that Madame Salman, her husband, and intelligence officers Jetsky were seen together at the apartment where the Salmans lived, leading us to confirm their identities. Now that the police know about my work, even if I stop, they've got me. And I can't stop because I'm waiting for an important meeting next month. Now, the espionage network was discovered uh, in December 1933. So Boris Zretsky was already followed by the police, and that's when he disappeared. They arrested me. I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. I'm pregnant. What will happen to the baby? I can't stay in jail. I have to confess. Why did she confess so quickly and so willingly? Um, Again, it's a difficult question because if we look at her photo taken by the police on the day or night of her arrest, she looks very defiant on it. And there is a certain clash between uh, that stubborn expression that she bears on that photo and her immediate confession and remorse. And she's going to express her remorse uh, during her trial as well. So why did she confess? Maybe for the first time she realized what she has gotten herself into. Maybe it was the fear of being pregnant and finding herself in uh, likely, most likely very difficult circumstances, which she then experienced. And she was right because the first at least eight months that she spent in jail, she spent in solitary confinement. The whole business was dubbed the Foreigner's Affair. Newspapers around the world ran stories on the pregnant spies, both Hannah and Madeleine, and their fellow agents who'd betrayed France. Mon Dieu, what have I done? My beloved France. Mosse and I have our future here. He's becoming a naturalised citizen. I owe everything to this country. 
my life wouldn't be the same if I was still in anti-Semitic Poland. I have so many opportunities here. It doesn't matter that I am Jewish. It's dark and wet and freezing in the cell. Every one of us is isolated. I can feel baby kick. She's growing. It would be better for her to stay inside me rather than be in prison. Hannah's friend Madeleine was in one of the cells nearby, but they couldn't see or speak to each other. Horrible. Horrible parce que c'était la. Je n'ai pas été Horrible. They didn't beat me, but I was locked up in an extremely old prison. It's more or less destroyed now. It was so cold. It was France during winter. They didn't hit the place, and we couldn't communicate at all. We were closely guarded and very lonely, absolutely alone. So it was hard. The food was obviously not first class. It was not food you'd serve to people. After eight months, they let me out of solitary confinement. Hannah moved to a newer prison called Fren a month before she gave birth. That was the end of her solitary confinement, and from then on she shared a cell with Madeleine. Then the trial started. International spy ring smashed. Mothers who sold state secrets sentenced with babes in arms. My daughter Colette is seven months old now. Today they're reading verdict in my trial. I won't give her to someone else to hold while I'm in court. I'm worried they'll try to take her away. There's a photo from that day of Hana standing in the dock holding her baby. She's focused on the judge. She looks small and frightened. Her face is white, and she's surrounded by men in dark suits. I feel so moved. I put this picture on my wall and in the lounge room, and every time I'm there, I can see it. I'm Colette, and surname Weinzov. My mother was Hannah Salman. It's moving not to see myself, but also it's moving to see. Now I'm about four, uh, 84, and to see me less than one year old, it's very moving. And of course, my mother so young, and so she was beautiful. She was beautiful, yes. Hannah was sentenced to three years, fined a thousand francs, and she was to be expelled from France when she came out of prison. The baby, Colette, lived at Fren too, but she didn't stay with Hannah. The children in this nursery were, um, were treated really well. They were well nourished, they were well fed. My grandmother was relating uh, to me, and so was Madeleine, that when there was an inspection uh, to come and look at, the, at how the children were kept there, my mother was usually shown, she was like a showcase baby, because she was particularly well-nourished. Finally, I am free. I'm out of prison. I have to get to Molsey. He's in Moscow. 
working as a doctor, doing clinical and academic work at the university. What should we do now? I can't imagine going back to Poland. I can't show my face there again. After the shame I brought on my family from my trial? Khan and Moise could have gone back to Poland. World War II hadn't started by this stage, but they weren't ready to give up on their socialist ideals. So Khanna took their daughter Colette and joined Moise in Moscow. They were shifted from um, a hotel room where initially they stayed uh, to a place where there were many other uh, political refugees, yeah. So there were uh, refugees who ran away from Hitler, from Germany and from Austria, from Poland, from Hungary. Stalin suspected every foreigner of treason, regardless of what they'd done to help the Soviet Union. Almost every night the police come. One of our neighbours disappears every time. Are we next? Moise keeps a bag by the door. He has a towel and a toothbrush, so he can take it with him in a rush if the secret police come for him. The police did come for him in 1937. The charges against him were attempting to poison a patient of his, an old Bolshevik, being a spy for the UK and Japan, and having the same last name as a man who owned a sugar factory in Ukraine years ago. Moise was in prison for 18 months. He heard people being tortured. They'd come back to the cell broken. He was interrogated too, but they never beat him. Moise is back with us. I didn't know if I would ever see him again. We are all terrified because on the radio they say the Germans have invaded and are getting closer. My neighbour Olga has permission to evacuate with her family. Because Moise and I aren't allowed to leave, she's agreed pretend that Colette is her child and take her with them. They leave tomorrow for Kazakhstan. I don't know how Colette will manage. She hasn't started school yet and she doesn't speak Russian. And on the station, when my parents were taking uh, me to join the family and we were walking along the train, they told me, Forget French. You are going like a daughter of this family and you have to speak Russian. But I could not speak. I did uh, know maybe uh, a few words in Russian. But they said, forget French, forget German and go and start talking in Russian. It took a year for Hannah to get permission to evacuate, but Moise had to stay behind. The evacuation had a huge impact on Colette. The pressure of pretending to be part of the neighbour's family and being without her parents, it surfaced in a way she didn't expect. For one year I forgot French completely, completely, yes. And I came, I could not say a word in French. I did not know what is happening with my mind there, my memory, you know, to forget everything. 
Yes, and then I, if I wanted, probably, I could, uh, speaking to my parents, I could uh, renew it. But uh, I was uh, scared to speak again because it was a war time and people around did not understand is it German or is it French, you know, and I was like enemy. And that's why I did not, I did not want, yes. After my grandmother and my mother came back to Moscow from Kazakhstan, they uh, were reunited again with my grandfather, who had spent the whole of the war uh, or the beginning of the war in Moscow. And they found him extremely emaciated, uh, but alive. And uh, my mother remembers that when they first came home, he had put on the table these pieces of bread. It was not only bread, but some food that he saved uh, during now we were in Kazakhstan. And he put all in the table. And I was looking and started eating, and my mother started also eating, and he was um, taking from the table the crumbs. the crumbs and putting in his hand like this and put in his mouth. And I was asked, why are you doing this? Why don't you eat this bread? And he said, no, I had it just, it's a pity to throw it away. Yes. Life here isn't what I expected. In Paris, we had a lovely home and our freedom. Here, we're all living in one room. We go to the toilet outside the house. We bring water from the street. We are cold. Who would think that two doctors would have to chop their own wood every day for cooking and heating? We could return to Poland, but I've heard the most terrifying rumors about concentration camps and executions. Khan and Moise's families in Poland were all dead. Eventually they found out. Even after the war ended, the Salmans had a tough time in Russia. There was another wave of arrests and persecutions, and... Around 1949, there was a so-called campaign against the cosmopolitans. And that was essentially a campaign against the Jews, who were considered to be uh, the so-called rootless uh, cosmopolitans, uh, people with no attachment to the land, or so they were accused of, uh, of that. And uh, one of the one of the things that happened next was that because my grandfather had his degree from a French university, Sorbonne, he lost his right to practice in that medical um, faculty where he had been working and where he had uh, virtually finished his um, dissertation. And for months and years, in vain, he tried to find employment, and he couldn't. And he ended up going to the Crimean city of Simferopol, where finally he found some employment. 
So the family was separated once again. And it was not until Stalin's death in 1953 that eventually, eventually he managed to come back to Moscow. After Stalin died, the Soviet Union still wasn't a place for Jewish expression. When our class teacher was filling up uh, some paper, a list of paper, and you have to put, like, your religion. So I had to say, Yevreika, a Jew. But all people look at me and were looking what I was saying. And I could not say I am a Jew. I said, I am a French, because I was born in France. From the late 70s, the Salmans managed to emigrate to Australia, couple by couple. Ludmilla and her husband Jerome came first, and her parents came later. I don't feel here that I'm Jewish. I know that I'm Jewish, but from outside, no one said to me, ah, go away, you are Jewish, or you are like this or this. No. When I started working here, it was not a problem at all. For me, it was a problem my Russian, uh, my English. I think it's very interesting how my mum... answered this question because for her the question of being Jewish means being a victim of anti-Semitism. So when you said, I don't feel Jewish, you meant I don't experience anti-Semitism. Yeah, and that's, I think, our experience, I think our fear of humiliation, of insults, of taunts is in our gut. Ludmilla told me that because she'd grown up in Russia, she thought her grandma's work as a spy in France was heroic, but that the consequences were pedestrian. So many people in the Soviet Union had been in prison or had been brutalised by the police. But when she was researching Khanna's story, something changed in the way she thought about her grandmother. I became angry at my grandmother as I was learning more because the whole story made little rational sense from today's perspective. But I became angry when I started thinking about my grandfather because he had his dreams. He was academically brilliant. He was brilliant in every possible respect. He was multilingual. He spoke and wrote fluently. He spoke without an accent. And at the time when my grandmother became involved in this espionage network, he was sitting for special exams to become naturalized French. So the plan was to stay in Paris and to become French citizens and to practice medicine. And when I think that he's the one who was arrested in the Soviet Union, and he's the one who later on in life suffered from the heart disease and hypertension and was very sick, Of course, I had a feeling of resentment, thinking, you know, how could she? How could she? In the early 80s, Khan and Moise came to Australia to visit Ludmilla. They never returned to the Soviet Union, though. If I could have my life again, I would never have agreed to what Boris convinced me to do. 
We got sick when visited Australia. Neither Moise nor I could make it back on a plane. But don't be sad for us. Finally, we ended up in the worst. It wasn't Paris, but still. My Grandmother the Spy was produced by Alice Molderman. The sound engineer was Mark Don, and the imagined voice of Hannah Sulman was performed by Gosha Dubrovska. You've been with the History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.